Turn please to Ezekiel in chapter 48. Ezekiel chapter 48. I want to read verses 30 to 35. Ezekiel chapter 48. Ezekiel 48 verse 30. Hear the word of God. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east gate, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. I'm sorry, 1,800, yeah, whatever that is. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Well, here we are at the end. For those of you keeping score at home, it's been 25 sermons so far. This is the 26th, so I don't know what your guess was. But we did 26 of them, counting the one I preached at Presbytery, so I snuck an extra one in there. But for me, it's been about six months. It may seem long to you. It doesn't seem long enough for me because I've been having my head in Ezekiel for a long time over the years. And I came here, as you know, because I wanted... I came to Ezekiel, as you know, because I wanted to know God as he did, to see God as Ezekiel saw him. Because you remember, as as Ezekiel begins, he sees God holy, his holy fire, omniscient, ever-present, this independent one, this one who goes wherever he wishes and does whatever he so desires, that God. And you remember, Ezekiel saw him and went face down because he was humbled by that. And then he received this call from God, wherein Ezekiel was told that he must speak only the word of God and nothing else, only that word which he sees by way of vision, which God communicates to him, and only that is he to share. And so that's the God that Ezekiel came to, humbled by the very presence of God. And you remember that Ezekiel was to give this word to a very rebellious people. People, God said, will not listen to you, but still be faithful to give this word to them and to speak it to them. And it was a word, initially, you remember, of judgment because they had sinned against God and they had sinned grievously against him and and God was going to to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And, And you remember that great devastating vision that Ezekiel saw where God left the temple. He was no longer there, present there. And the city, you remember, was destroyed. Ezekiel and many others had been exiled some years even before this. And they were in... Babylon. They were as far in those days as one could ever imagine from being home and with no real hope of ever getting back. They were so far away. But it wasn't just a geographical issue. It was a spiritual issue. Not only was it so far away from Jerusalem geographically, but but spiritually so far away from God because of the nature, the hardness of of their own hearts. But in the midst of that, God continued to say, I'll restore you. I'll restore you. 
And again, not just geographically, but spiritually. He says, I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. And we wonder, how could that be? How could God ever do that? How could he ever get them from Babylon back to Jerusalem locationally? But even more so, how could he really change their hearts so that this rebellious people that were against him would now turn to him and walk in his ways? How could that ever be? And God says, well, I'm going to come. And I'm going to come like a shepherd. And I'm going to gather you. I'm going to gather you from all the nations where you are. I'm going to gather you up. I'm going to heal you and restore you and nurture you and nourish you and guide you and lead you just like a good shepherd will. Good shepherd would and I'm going to restore you to that very place in my own in my own heart and I'm going to make a covenant of peace and this covenant of peace will be great because the land will bless you and you will be blessed and then he tells them again I will cleanse you from your sin I'll sprinkle clean water upon you and cleanse you and I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh and I will put a new spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you. And I'll cause you to walk in my ways. And then he gives a picture of how he'll do that. And he shows Ezekiel this picture of these dead, dry bones out on this field. And he said, speak the word to the bones and speak the word to the wind, the spirit. And by God's word and God's spirit, these bones come to life. And we see that's how he'll do it. By his word and spirit, they will come to life. And there's a wonderful expression then at the very end of that little picture in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 26, where God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set, in their, set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. My sanctuary is in their midst forever. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Music to their ears. Because you see, the distinguishing thing of the people of God always is his presence. You remember a time when, when Moses was having a little difficulty with the people. And uh, uh, God said that he, wasn't, he, God, wasn't going to go with the people any longer. And Moses didn't like that. And essentially said, God, if you're not going, I'm not going. Well, God says, all right, I'll go. But Moses' argument with God, if you will, was, God, this is the thing that distinguishes us from everybody else. You're with us. If you're not with us, we're no longer your people. Thus, we cease to have any distinction at all from the other nations. And Moses would say, what God is there like our God, who is so near to us when we pray? And who has taken from all the nations of the world, this one nation, this one people, to be his. And, and so the distinguishing factor. When the tabernacle came, the Spirit of God filled it. When the temple was built, the Spirit of God filled it. When the word of the prophet came, it was there was one whose name will be Emmanuel who will come and dwell among you. And the government shall be his and shall rest upon him and he shall rule. So always, this great word, I will be your God and you will be my people. What would that look like? Then God gives Ezekiel this final vision of this, of this temple. Not a temple to be built, per se, because it's not like anything you could ever imagine. It's perfectly proportioned. But this temple is great, and it's how they understood the very presence of God with them. That you would enter into the presence of God through another, a priest. You would enter into the presence of God, sins forgiven because of the death of one for you, and all that presented for you. And out of the very sanctuary of God, you remember, comes this little trickle of water that grows into this great river, and along this river is life. Everything that it touches is life, and it feeds and it heals. 
there'd be a place for the prince to rule and a place for the priest to live. And then he goes through and he divides up the land. He says, he says there'll be land for you, just like I've, I've promised. But he divides it up in a very interesting way, very proportional, as is everything in this temple. And there are seven tribes to the north who all get their lands layered. And it then comes to the city in which is the sanctuary of God, five tribes to the south. And he says, there it is. And then he gives a name to the city, and that's the point today. The name of the city is simply this, God is there. Now, whatever did that mean? What did it mean? What does it mean that God is there in the midst of his people? God is there, right there. Who is that for? When will that happen? And certainly how? That's the big question because we know that the Israelites were gathered the people of Judah were gathered from the captivity in which they were in and they did go back to uh, Jerusalem and you remember during the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra the temple was rebuilt the wall around the temple was rebuilt but yet it wasn't like this it wasn't a situation where this kind of river that flowed out from the sanctuary and brought life everywhere. It wasn't a situation where everybody was caused to walk in the ways of God. It wasn't like that. Yes, God blessed, but blessed, but not in the kind of measure that we read here and we would expect in these days of Ezekiel. And so, when is this going to happen? For whom is this going to happen? How is this really going to happen? Well, the way that we understand Old Testament anything is by way of the New Testament. I believe, at least it's accredited generally to St. Augustine, who said, in the Old Testament concealed, in the New Testament revealed. Or others have said, in the Old Testament contained, by the New Testament explained. And so we understand all these things that took place in the Old Testament uh, by way of the New. And we've been stressing a great deal as we've gone through these latter chapters, two things about the scripture. One is its unity that we're not talking about two different things here from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but merely one. There's a unity here. The Old Testament isn't about Israel, while the New Testament is about the church. The Old Testament and the New Testament are about exactly the same thing. Better, exactly the same one. Because the Old Testament is about Jesus, and the New Testament is about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, the temple, the priests, the sacrifice, the altar, the river of life, the, the laws of, of cleanliness and purity, everything points to Jesus. The feasts, and then Jesus comes. And so the Old Testament is about the one who is to come, who will fulfill everything that's talked about there. And then he comes. And the New Testament, oddly enough, that's about Jesus too, who has come and who is coming, because you see, the focal point of everything in our lives is Christ. So there's a unity here from beginning to end. But secondly, there's a progressiveness, progression in the revelation from Genesis to Revelation. There's a progression here. That is to say, we begin in Genesis 3.15 with this promise of this one who is, to, who is to come, and then everything else builds on that to show who he is and how he's going to come and that he comes. And so we know more by the time we get to the Gospels than we knew in Exodus. We know more through the letters of Paul than we did just having the prophets. In fact, 
the apostles even say that the prophets long to see and to understand what we now know because of the coming of Jesus. And so we understand these difficult things from the Old Testament, these visions and pictures and so forth. We understand them in light of what is true in the New Testament. All right? Are you with me? Hello. Okay. Now, one came, God himself. There was an announcement about one who would come whose name would be Emmanuel. And that means God with us. You know that. He would be a son of David, the son of David, just like the son of David who is to sit on the throne of David. And you understand that when he was young, he found himself in the temple. And he said, you shouldn't be surprised, this is my father's house. And on another occasion later than when he was an adult, he looked at the temple and he said, you destroy this and I'll rebuild it in three days. And again, this is a review for us. The scripture said he was talking about his body. That is, he was equating himself with the temple. So that if you looked at this temple standing there and you looked at Jesus standing there, you would see a redundancy. Because everything that was true in the context of this temple was fulfilled and true in this man. who was the very temple of God. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest. He's the very river of life. This Jesus, all right? Right there. He would say that he was God. He said, the, the Father and I are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, if you honor me, it's like honoring God. If you love me, it's like loving God. If you believe in me, it's like believing in God. If you trust me, it's trusting in God. If you don't trust me, it means you don't trust God. If you don't love me, it means you don't love God. If you don't believe in me and you don't honor me, then you don't love and honor, believe in God. He was equating himself. But we saw the very characteristics of God uh, in him. We saw the fact that he was eternal when he said, Abraham has seen my day and rejoiced in it. Well, how could that be? Abraham had been dead a long time. I mean, I can now quote him as an old dead guy. There he is, Abraham. He's long dead. But Jesus existed. Second person of the Trinity, eternally existing in the days of Abraham. And Abraham saw this great day of the Messiah and rejoiced. And rejoiced in it. We saw his power over nature. He could say to the storm, shush, and it would... We saw it over physical life. He says, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Lazarus lived. We saw him nurture people by feeding thousands with just a little bit of bread, power, and compassion. We saw the very compassion of God in him because he looked at people and he said, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them. And then he saw their difficulties and their illness and he touched them. And they were made he forgave their sins just like only God could forgive the sins of someone he could bring salvation to him as he said to Zacchaeus today salvation has come to this to this house the very temple of God the very presence of God God with us you could look at Jesus and say God is there the very temple of God, the very presence of God, the very dwelling of God among us. In fact, when John would write about him, he would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go down to verse 14, if you're tracking in John 1 with me, and you would read, 
that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, tented among us, tabernacled among us, lived among us. You would look at Jesus and you would say, God is there. Then they killed him. But then he came back to life. And then you could say, God is there. But then he ascended. Oh, now what? Now turn to John 14. John 14 and verse 15. This is Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Okay? He's with his disciples. They're going to share communion together. The disciples don't know that. They still think it's Passover, but Jesus is going to bump it up. Because he's fulfilling, of course, the Passover. So in John 14, verse 15... Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus said there's one coming from the Father. He's called the spirit of truth and he's going to dwell with them and he's going to actually be so close to them that Jesus would say he's actually in you. And then in verse 22, Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so there's a sense in which now we see God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, the Father and Son will come and dwell in us, live in us, make his home in us. God in us. Then notice chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. He says, listen, this one who comes, the Spirit of Truth, who comes from the Father, this Helper, he will bear witness of me, says Jesus, meaning the Spirit of God will bring the very presence of the risen Christ, the very presence of the ascended Christ to us. It's amazing. Chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whether, whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is to say, the Holy Spirit comes and brings to us the presence of Jesus, so he is with us. And he declares it to us, he speaks it to us by his word and on the inside, by the witness of the Spirit within, that we might know the presence of Jesus in us. Now what would that look like? Well, when the Spirit of God comes, being the Spirit of God, bringing that which is true of Christ, what would he bring? He brings life. He brings life. Jesus said that if you thirst, come to him and he will give you living water. He will give you life. You remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus 
speaking about spiritual things. What was Jesus' point? You must be born again. That is, you must be born of water and the Spirit, cleansing and the Spirit of God who brings cleansing and life. He says this is a, a new birth spiritually so that you can live. Uh, Paul writes to Titus and he speaks of the washing of regeneration by the Spirit. That is the cleansing that comes from the Spirit when we're born again, when we're born anew. And so life should be seen in us. And what this life means is that we realize who Jesus is and we trust him. We realize who Jesus is and we're convicted of our sin and our need for Christ. We see the sufficiency of Jesus, that everything he did is necessary for us. And thus we trust him. That's, that's life. That's, that's evidence of life in us. Just like when a little baby is born, evidence is, is crying or breath or whatever it is in us. It's turning away from our sin and trusting Christ because we see him. That's real life. That's a, a work of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us. So we would see life when the Spirit of God is coming to us and then makes his home in us and dwells in us. We would see a, a whole new orientation to life and to death. Death would no longer be something that we should fear because we know that Christ has conquered it for us. Life then is something we must definitely live because Christ is in us and we live to his glory. We see transformation take place in the course of our life because when the Spirit of God comes and lives within us, he brings Christ in us so we should see Christ out of us. We should see Christ in us and in the character of Christ. For instance, in 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 3 and verse 17, the apostle writes, Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So he's saying, okay, here's, here's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, Paul is saying, the job of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is to get us to see Jesus, that we might behold Him, that we might see Him, that we might see all that He has done and all that He is and our need for Him. And he says, listen, when you behold Him, when you see Him, that's transforming. That changes you. I don't know in your context of your life if, if you've seen something and after which you've never been the same. Think in your head. Is there anything like that? For me, it was a curveball. <laughs> After that, I'd never... But, you know, I just, it was just amazing to me. That ball go... But what is it in the context of your life? Actually, it was my wife. I should say that. Before she was my wife, I saw her. Humanities class. 12th grade. <sighs> never been the same. That's true. Um, But the point here is when you see Jesus, you really will never be the same. It's transforming. And he comes and dwells in you. For instance, in Ephesians and chapter 3, uh, notice what the apostle says. Verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And so here's the prayer. Something concerning the Spirit of God in us, dwelling in us. And you remember, when the Spirit of God dwells in us, He brings Jesus to us. He brings the very presence of Christ to us. 
So verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's saying the Spirit comes for the purpose of bringing Christ to dwell. That little word to dwell there means to permanently inhabit, to permanently reside. This isn't a renting situation. This isn't a a vacation situation for Jesus. He's just going to be there for two weeks. He's coming to dwell. And so when Jesus comes to dwell, then what he does is he transforms, he remodels. You know, I, I tease all the time about this show called Before and After on HGTV. Not that I watch that. I'm a manly man. But anyway, uh, but it's funny to me because this, this show, they show remodels, they call them. They take a 1,400 square foot house and make it an 8,000 square foot house and they call that a remodel. You know, basically they show you the old house. That's the master bedroom closet now. And they've built everything else around. What's like that with Jesus except that When you look back, you don't see the old house. You just see what he's done. He dwells, and so he remodels, and so he transforms. And so we should see that growing in the context of our lives as Christ is in us. So much so that when people look at us individually, but most assuredly when people look at us collectively, they should say, God is there. New heart, new spirit, his spirit in us to cause us to walk in his ways. God is there. That's what they should see. Now, you remember from last Sunday, John chapter 7. Turn there quickly. John 7 and verse 37. <clears throat> I'm not going to go back through all of this. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, remember, and if you were here, um, you know all the setup there. But on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. All right? Jesus is the source of this living water. He is, you know, the, 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 the water that trickles out of the, the, the temple. Um, trickles out of the temple uh, and, and forms this great river that's in Jesus and so we come to him and drink and so he gives us this living water anyone thirst let him come to me and drink and so again this, this water should be living and moving in us and producing this great what we call fruit of the spirit character traits of Jesus and that by the way should be our identity I don't know how you think of yourself. But one of the categories that we must think about ourselves is that we are now a Christ living in me person. Right? We're a Christ living in me person by the Holy Spirit. And you see, that identity in us should cause us to realize that God is always with us and he's always transforming us And as he calls us to obey him, the Spirit of God in us is to empower us to do that, to bring that that transformation. I remember when the children were little and they'd been crying for about five nights in a row. It was finally then my turn to get up. Being the guy. 
guys are nice. We take every fifth night. Um, I'm crying. But, but I remember, I would, I would gear myself up for this, and I, was, I would think before I went to bed, remember when you wake up at, you know, one, two, three, four, and five, to this child, remember the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he's the one who produces fruit, the very character of Christ in you. And so you may feel impatient, but he's patient. You may feel like expressing something harsh, but he's gentle. You may not be very happy, but he's joy. And so as you enter to care for this one who's aggravating you at the moment, remember who's in you. And he will produce in you that which you need. So call upon him for patience. Call upon him for kindness. Call upon him for joy. Call upon him for gentleness. Call upon him for forgiveness. Call upon him for all that you need because he's there, right there with you, the very presence of Christ with you. You don't have to scream to him. He's here. You have to search for him. He's here to work that that's this identity of us as a person in whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's why it, the Apostle could very easily say to us that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and use the word temple legitimately. Temple meaning the very presence of God. That you're a temple of the Holy Spirit because he's there in you, with you. And so temple, the very presence of God in you and among you. And then on this last day of the feast, Jesus says, okay, if you come to me, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink with the implication that I'll, I'll give you uh, this water so that you'll never thirst again. That's what he told the woman at the well. But then he goes on to say something astounding to me in verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, or innermost being, some of you may have in your translations, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He, Jesus says, listen, not only do you have these rivers of living water moving in you to transform you and all of that, but where you go, this living water will flow from you. Now that's amazing to me. Uh, we saw in the offering time, I gave the, a little illustration about the Macedonian church and others that have, had given. And, and, and Paul writes and says, your generosity will well up within them thanks to God. See, they may not even, I don't know what they were thinking when they gave exactly, except that they cared for those who were in need. But, but the point, the end result of all of that was life came to those people. And they, they turned to God and said, thank you. And so we have to have this, again, identity about us. That as we go around and we live our lives in front of people, and as we go around and we, and we help here and we help here and we, we contribute there and we comment here, that because we're people in whom the Spirit of God lives, as we're faithful to Him and obedient to Him, there's a sense in which the very life of God flows from us. I just find that astounding. Because I wouldn't get up in the morning if this weren't true. Because I look at my life, and, I, and I'm not looking for sympathy here, trust me, uh, but I don't know of any way I could be of help to anybody, particularly. I mean, I know the problems you have, and I know the problems I have, and I'm not that good at mine. But there's something about this sentence that says, no, get up and go about your day and, and take up that which is before you to do. 
and, and be involved in the lives of people and God will work and he'll work because the river of life is in you and it will flow from you because of Jesus and his presence there. Oh, turn. Tip off's not till one. Um, to Galatians in chapter five. I'm almost done. Galatians chapter five. These fruit of the Spirit are by and large, you understand, to be helpful to other people. Notice. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, who's the beneficiary when you're a loving person? The person you love, right? I mean, it, it flows to them. It's good for them that you're a loving person. I mean, it helps you some. You probably feel good and all that sort of thing. But really, it's helpful to them. Joy. You may say, well, that's a personal thing, isn't it? No. Joyful people make other people feel really good. You know, if you're a person of joy, yes, that's good for you, but it's a great blessing to the people you're around. To be able to look at someone who's, who's in peace and satisfied with their life and exuding joy is a great blessing really for others. Rivers of life flow out of joyful people. If you don't believe that, be around a crabby person. You drown in their river but be around a joyful person and you receive life you see peace peace inner but peace with others patience who gets helped by the person by, by your patience well the person who's aggravating you receives life because you're patient with them see that you may get well you probably just get heartburn but they get life flow from you kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness. We live in a very ungentle culture. Turn on the TV and everybody's yelling at you. The news commentators are yelling at you. The sports commentators are yelling at you. The politicians are yelling at each other. Um, you go to work and the competition is great. Uh, you go to school and the competition is great. It's a very ungentle world that we live in. And so we're to be gentle, you see. So much so that in our own gentleness, when people see us, they should turn around and say, that's God. You know the great image of Jesus, and I share this all the time, because this is one of my favorite pieces about Jesus from Isaiah, where it simply says that a bruised reed he will not break, and a burning flax he will not snuff out. I think about that all the time. Because a bruised reed is right ready to break, but there's something about the gentleness of the powerful Son of God who could create a planet with his word that he's able to touch that bruised reed so gently that it doesn't break but actually strengthens he can take a wick that's out of flame and just about out and he can blow on it so gently the very son of God that could blow wind from one side of the country world to the other and knock everything down in between can be so gentle with his breath that he can cause that little wick to burst forth into flame. And when we're gentle, it's so unusual that people turn around and must think, that's God. Rivers of living water you see flowing. And so as a community of people, we need to realize that as we're out there and we're helping and we're talking and we're just being Christians, Christ in me people, Holy Spirit in me people, God dwelling in me people, that rivers of living water flow by the Spirit of God. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians 12 through 14, another place in the scripture, the, the Bible tells us that they're given to us not so much for the individual who receives that, i.e. the person with the gift of encouragement, but the person who needs encouraging. God gives to you and me, by and large, what other people need. So that, in love and faith, we'll turn around and help them. So if you have knowledge, don't be so proud. It's not for you, it's for somebody else probably. Go find the person searching for that answer, that concept, that help, and give it to them. You got money, it may not be for you. Go find that person who needs it and give it to them. See, out of us, as the Spirit gives for the common good, comes rivers of life. And so we need to have the identity as a church and as individual Christians that Christ is in us, is always with us, transforming. And out of us flows rivers of living water, so much so that when people look at us collectively and individually, they should be able to say, God is there. New heart, new spirit, there. But of course, it's still not like it was explained by Ezekiel. Quickly, Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. If you like the sea, don't, this isn't a bum rap on seas. It's just an image. And John is, the angel is explaining to John, and John is seeing in the scripture, seas always roared, and they were unstable, and they were scary. And you see, relax, everything's calm here. So the sea, in that sense, is no more. But there's a new heaven and a new earth. He says, you remember that picture that Ezekiel had, where God was? It was a temple, and it was a country, and it was land, and it was the presence of God. Well, that was a picture of what is to come. Because you can't contain God in that piece of property. You can't contain God in that little city that was described there. In fact, so much so that a day will come where God will be dwelling among his people that what can only be called a new heavens and a new earth because his glory will cover that whole earth as the waters cover the sea. It isn't just about a piece of land over in the Middle East. It's about the whole earth. That's how the New Testament understands that land. It isn't just a piece. That was just a picture. This is the reality, the whole earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem-ish. It's like Jerusalem. But it's new, it's different. That was just a temporal thing. That was just an illustration. That was just a place to get your bearings. But now it's bigger than that. It's a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It's a heavenly thing. Prepared as a bride. We know that. That's us, the church. Ordained for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He's saying, Listen, the day is coming and it will come. There's some debate about how that's all going to work out. But it will come. And it will come for all believers, Jews and Gentiles. And there will be no going back to sacrifices and temples and any of that. Because that's completely unnecessary. He says, this is what we have to look forward to. This new heaven, this new earth. 
Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down from uh, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed upon the three east gates, the, three, the north three gates, and the south three gates, and the west three gates, just like Ezekiel said. That was his picture. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Why didn't Ezekiel get that information? Because it wouldn't have made any sense to him then. But it makes sense to us now that God's doing one thing, gathering one people, Jew and Gentile, people from every tongue, tribe, people and nation, as he says, to be his own. And so it's founded on, yes, what took place in the Old Testament, but yes, what took place in the New Testament. It's all one deal because of Jesus. He was the fulfillment of everything promised to them. He's the fulfillment of everything promised to us because he is the temple. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the good shepherd. He's the feast. He's everything. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. What do you mean no temple? How can it be cool without a temple? You don't need that because of Jesus. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. He's right there. The very dwelling place of God. All of this earth this new earth. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By the light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring gl their glory into it, and its gates will, be, will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's 